This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. This is our penultimate show before election 2020, so the pressure's on to put a lot of stuff here that we need to talk about. We do note that it will be on next week's program that we will, again, speak with Stephen J. Harper about his excellent timelines, which you can find on BillMoyers.com. You can also find them on TrumpPandemic.net, which is a website we have been working to maintain, shall we say. It's a little unfortunate that website was delayed along the way. We would have liked to have had it fully functional a month ago, but we do hope in the last uh, run-up to the election here that We'll be able to get a lot of people to check it out and maybe change a few votes. I have been speaking with one such candidate to to change his vote here in California. And I do find it interesting that he wants to like Donald J. Trump, but doggone it, he just has some doubts. He brought up uh, this idea about, well, what what, what are all these doctors that are saying that, you know, the herd immunity is the way to go? And I had to, well, stay tuned. We're going to talk about that. We said, I think, on last week's program that, you know, when it comes to the COVID-19 pandemic and election 2020, they are two completely intertwined news stories. The fact of the matter is that even with a president who seems rather loosely wrapped and, well, never has been a good decision maker, that here in the U.S. we've taken steps that have been extraordinarily counterproductive. If you go to trumppandemic.net, and we hope that you will, You'll note that, you know, we're very upfront about describing that the unnecessary death toll in the U.S. is currently hovering at about 150,000. That's imprecise, that number, but it's somewhere in that ballpark. If you compare what we've done in the United States to what they did in South Korea, which was pretty much everything right, as opposed to America, where we've done pretty much everything wrong, you'll find that the total death toll is something like eh, 450. By contrast, here in the state of California alone, we have seen that many deaths in the last about 10 days, which I think gives you a pretty stark contrast of, you know, what happens if you treat a disease like a disease and if you treat the disease like a public relations problem that you hope will just go away. One nice feature that we've incorporated into trumppandemic.net is a series of graphs, produced by Dan. Dan has taken the time to just to come forward over the months of the pandemic to show how things have changed. We did this uh, rather crudely on the program a few weeks ago, describing how it was that the states that have the highest case rates uh, seem to be red states. But if you look at one of Dan's graphs and either plug in you know, the, the states that are the worst or the states that are the best, you will be able to see rather dramatically and graphically how it is as the months roll by the worst hit states go from a mixture of blue and red to red, whereas the best hit states go from a mixture of blue and red to blue. Looking at my current copy of the East Bay Times at the moment and looking at uh, their summary of the case rates of the various states, I marked in the states that have more than 3,000 cases per 100,000 citizens, and it looks as though in the United States there are currently 18 of them. How many do you imagine are red states? And keep in mind that red states are more rural. And rural environments are less conducive to the spread of the virus than crowded urban environments. In spite of that, it turns out that 17 of the 18 states 
were red states. They voted for Trump in 2016. And I think it's fair to assume are more inclined to follow Trump's advice than the blue states. Currently, the worst hit state in the United States of America is North Dakota. I'm, I'm not sure in the whole state of North Dakota they have, they have a, a, a community of more than 50,000 people. Well, I could be wrong on that, but I know the entire state has a population less than that of the city of San Francisco, or at least it did until fairly recently. In short, it's a very rural environment, and yet it's suffering terribly. So much is the fact that the virus likes to jump person to person when nobody's wearing a mask and nobody's social distancing. That's how we think you can explain this. So we have two threads to weave in today's program. Trump pandemic and campaign 2020. In particular, Trump in campaign 2020. Because, well, and what I have to consider a bit of dark humor, it it does seem that Trump's aides desperately want him to stop talking about coronavirus. They'd rather talk about the wonderful job he's allegedly done to make the economy run more smoothly which personally I think is based upon two components, smoke and mirrors. But uh, it seems pretty clear to everybody in his camp that any and all talk of coronavirus is kind of a losing proposition, but he just can't help himself. I think what I'm going to do is go to trumppandemic.net and pull off our timeline and talk about the things that have happened since we last were speaking into a microphone. I think this will be a worthwhile five or six minutes. Let's go back to the 15th. Last Thursday, when we were last heard on terrestrial radio, Trump ally Chris Christie urged people to wear masks. After spending seven days in an ICU where he, like Trump, received antibodies and remdesivir, Christie warned that the virus is something to take very seriously. Adding, I was wrong not to wear a mask at the Amy Comey Barrett announcement and wrong not to wear a mask at my multiple debate prep sessions with the president and team. To which he added, No one should be cavalier about being infected or infecting others. To which we say, well, thank you, Governor. By the way, I'm still in a bit of shock to to find out that one of the hospitals local to me uh, has a stockpile of remdesivir, but concluded that it simply didn't work. They're not even using it on their hospitalized sick patients. That's That's not something I've seen in the national news media. Anyway, back to Thursday. In a televised town hall meeting, Donald Trump described Dr. Scott Atlas as one of the world's great experts on pandemics. Well, no. It turns out that Dr. Scott Atlas apparently is a genuine expert on neuroradiology, which is nothing like epidemiology. He suggested at that meeting that he has adopted Atlas's herd immunity plan, and Trump also continued to downplay the value of masks. He cited a study that 85% of people who wear masks still get COVID. And he implied that masks are not only ineffective, but probably a setup to get infection, which represents a complete and utter misinterpretation of the findings of that study. But he went on to repeat that lie at that meeting that we have a cure, a cure for the virus. This is an opinion that appears to be unique to Donald Trump and a handful of other people because there's certainly no reputable doctors that would agree that we have a quote-unquote cure. Anyway, on Friday the 16th, stats showed that U.S. was nearing 70,000 new COVID cases in a day, which is the highest number since the middle of July. Ten states were noting their highest single-day tallies in the last 10 weeks. And experts were saying that the long-feared fall surge of coronavirus infections is in fact now underway. Epidemiologist Dr. Abdul El-Sayed 
stated that when we saw this kind of transmission earlier in the pandemic, in March and April, the virus hadn't seeded everywhere. This surge has the potential to be way worse than it was in either spring or summer, end quote. Now, if you're keeping scored, and I hope you are, daily U.S. cases averages had dropped to about 3,400 by September 12th, but the country's now averaging over 55,000 new cases daily over the past week. That's up more than 60% since just a month ago in September. Now, we assume that not only did we have access to these numbers, but the president must have as well. He nevertheless went to a campaign rally in Fort Myers, Florida, and told the audience, the light at the end of the tunnel is here, emphasizing that the U.S. is rounding the turn. And you know, for those of you of a certain age, that phrase, I think we can see the light at the end of the tunnel, might just send shivers up your spine as it reminds you of what was being said about the Vietnam War. That statement was made by, I can't remember who said it, a general Maybe it was Journal Westmoreland. I don't remember. About 1967 or 68, that statement was made. And wouldn't you know it, the war went on for five more years. It did promote a rather piece of black humor when the war finally did end in, in 1974, when someone made the statement, Will the last person to leave the country please turn out the light at the end of the tunnel? Anyway, back to Friday. 16th of October, over 1,000 current and former officers of an elite CDC disease-fighting program signed an open letter decrying the nation's public health response to coronavirus. The signatories, members of the Epidemic Intelligence Service of Outbreak Investigators, called for the agency to play a more central role in battling the pandemic. They wrote, they said, quote, to express our concern about the ominous politicization and silencing of the nation's health protection agency, end quote. They added that the absence of national leadership on COVID-19 is unprecedented and dangerous. And for his part, on the other hand, Trump tweeted, the United States shows more cases than other countries, which the lamestream fake news media pounces on daily because it tests at such a high and costly level. Adding, the more you test, the more cases you'll be reporting. Very simple. To which health authorities noted that the U.S. is now doing more testing than it had been. But it is not true that we see an increase in cases only because of that. Trump keeps making this claim, but at no point has it ever been true. There's an ongoing increased spread of the virus. It's not merely more cases being captured by the testing. Hospitalizations are rising in many states, and the percentage of U.S. tests coming back positive has increased throughout this month of October. On Saturday, October 17th, Trump decided to hold a rally in Wisconsin. The governor had requested that he not do so. Wisconsin physicians had warned even before the event that such a rally would endanger public health. And a report from the White House's own task force, the Coronavirus Task Force, had explicitly recommended against such events in Wisconsin because of its current surge of cases. It's now the fourth worst in the nation. The president then went on to Michigan, In a rally there, he berated Governor Whitman's efforts to limit the spread of COVID-19 by restricting economic activity. Trump says, you got to get your governor to open up your state. At which point the crowd began chanting, lock her up, lock her up, echoing that refrain that they used in 2016 against Hillary Clinton, which showed a lot of class, didn't it? After hearing that, Trump under the microphone adds, lock them all up. Now, Governor Whitman, who'd been threatened by a kidnapping plot, which did come after Trump tweeted, liberate Michigan, herself then tweeted, 
This is exactly the rhetoric that has put me, my family, and other government officials' lives in danger while we try to save the lives of our fellow Americans. It needs to stop. Former Trump aide Anthony Scaramucci, who's now a bit of a Trump critic, agreed that Trump's rhetoric is inciting violence. He accuses GOP leaders of being complicit by not denouncing it. And at one of the campaign rallies that day, I'm not sure which, Trump mocked Biden for wanting to heed the advice of Dr. Anthony Fauci, saying, quote, he'll listen to the scientists. If I listened totally to the scientists, we would right now have a country that would be in a massive depression. At which point I have to stop and say, he's at a campaign rally trying to get the crowd stoked up. And what does he say? Yeah, Joe Biden, he'd probably listen to my top health advisor. Do you guys want that? This takes us to Sunday, the 18th of October. Twitter decided to remove a tweet from Dr. Scott Atlas, wherein he claimed masks don't work to halt the spread of COVID-19. It was replaced with, this tweet is no longer available, and a link to Twitter policies explaining why certain posts are removed or limited. And on this same day, Sunday, despite Trump's hospitalization for COVID earlier this month, he and his aides do not wear masks at a church service in Nevada. It is held indoors with over 200 people in attendance. Many others at the crowded ceremony follow the lead of the presidential team and go without face masks. That evening, 60 Minutes heard an interview with Dr. Fauci wherein he said that the president's conduct makes it unsurprising that he caught the coronavirus. He also noted the administration had tried to muzzle him. A morning consult poll conducted from October 9th to 11th, showed almost two-thirds of U.S. voters rate Fauci's coronavirus response excellent or good. This poll indicated in in early October that 58% of voters believe Trump's handling the virus has been, by contrast, poor or just fair. Which takes us to Monday, October 19th. In a phone call to AIDS, a rather miffed Trump said, people are tired of COVID. They're tired of it. People are tired of hearing Fauci and all these idiots. Later in this same call, he apparently gets back to that 60 Minutes interview and, and, and maybe this polling data we just mentioned by saying, Fauci's a disaster. If I listened to him, we'd have 500,000 deaths. Being Trump, as he goes along, he, he can't help himself. He has to embellish it. At this point, he, he pumps up the number to 700,000 or 800,000. He also makes it clear that he doesn't care if the press quotes him, which they then do. It's also come out on this date that he has stopped attending coronavirus task force meetings. Trump. Trump, I mean. So that's where we are on the virus part. Seems undeniably true in the United States that if there was a mistake to be made, we have made it. In early January, Robert Redfield at the CDC and Alex Azar, Secretary of HHS, were pretty concerned about the possibility of COVID coming to American shores. But wouldn't you know it, they could not interest the president in the matter. When he was told on January 28th by his national security advisor this would be the biggest national security threat to his presidency, after which he decided to limit the number of people coming into the U.S. from China, but not American citizens. If you flew into the U.S. after this so-called ban from China and you were American citizen, you did not necessarily get screened. If you had a residency in the U.S. or or were the family member of someone that had a residency in the U.S., likewise, you did not face screening. It was only foreign nationals that were being screened by Trump in February. He told Bob Woodward on February 7th that this thing's bad. It spreads through the air. But in spite of urging by AIDS, nothing much was done about it. In fact, he kept reassuring the public that this thing is just going to go away. 
By the time we got to March, we had missed our opportunity to stop large number of infectious people arriving in the United States. And because we completely balled up the testing in February and into March, we were not able to find who had it and then contact trace those people who had been exposed and then isolate those people as needed. All that was missed. Finally, local and state governments realized that somebody had to do something about this. And after they initiated some business closings and requirements that people isolate at home as much as possible and wear masks and social distance, et cetera, et cetera, the federal government reluctantly got involved and they made some recommendations about, you know, staying in smaller groups and only shopping with necessary. Masks were not mentioned. And of course, by April and May, they wanted to reverse all that and open the country up again. In our second half today, I think we will briefly speak with um, someone who went across the country in May and spoke on this program on our June 4th show, talking about what she witnessed in Arizona and Texas and Florida. We think it's about time for an update with Susan Parker. And you know, I don't want to be beating a dead horse and talking about this over and over again, but you know, I just think we must to put it in perspective. And before we do a a brief review of what's been said lately on the campaign trail, I'd like to cite an article that was sent to me by um, Edward McMillan. The Edward McMillan? Yes. We've used the phrase October surprise on this program on many occasions because we've been fully expecting one. And in fact, I think we were able to report last month that the October surprise was the allegation by Trump that we would have a vaccine ready to go before Election Day which has always been a preposterous thing to say. Yes, there are vaccines out there. Yes, they're undergoing tests at the moment. Yes, we're trying to see in the human trials if if they're effective and, and don't have problems associated with them. But that's not the same as mass vaccinations, pure and simple. That just is literally impossible. So looking at all this, uh, Michael Payne, who is an independent progressive activist, he published a piece titled October Surprise! Exclamation point. U.S. psychiatrists convinced the media to reveal the extent of Trump's mental instability. That was more of a request in the headline. The subheadline was, There's still time for newspapers, radio, and TV to send the psychiatrist's message relative to Trump's severe mental problems all across this country. To quote a bit from the piece, Watching Trump's twisted behavior, nutty tweets, reckless policies, and actions over the past well, four years or so, one could easily conclude that he shows clear signs of severe mental problems. But since most of us are not psychiatrists, we are not qualified to make such judgments. While we may not be, there are many top-level, highly respected psychiatrists who most certainly are, and they did make their opinions known in a book in 2017 entitled The Dangerous Case of Donald Trump. The book was an instant bestseller and made some stunning revelations. Noted Michael Payne, you might think newspapers and TV networks would have immediately made it one of their top subjects, but they did no such thing, and for the most part, generally ignored it. Anyway, I'm not going to read the whole piece, but I did did like this one paragraph. What makes these psychiatrists think they can make judgments of this president's mental state without examining him? Well, there are multi-thousands of videos, audios, tweets, and other records of Trump's irrational behavior that clearly show that he has mental problems. Well, we talked about it on this program because we think they're on to something. If you have some doubts of whether they're on to something, let's just take a look at what CNN wrote here. Article by Daniel Dale, dateline October 20th, with the following headline. Fact-checking Trump's dishonest weekend. The president made at least 66 false or misleading claims in just three days. 
Let's start with Michigan, where there was a threat to the governor that she might be kidnapped and murdered by militants. When he was in Michigan, Trump suggested to the people at his rally they should be careful of Michigan's Democratic governor and the attorney general, saying, quote, because, you know, they're like in charge of the ballot stuff, right? So how the hell can I put my political life and my country's political life in the hands of pure partisans like that, right? Well, CNN noted that um, it's actually Michigan's Secretary of State, not the governor or the attorney general who were in charge of the elections. He also noted that in both Michigan and Georgia, that prior to 2016, no Republican presidential candidate had won Michigan in 38 years. Well, it actually turned out that George Herbert Walker Bush had done it in 1988, 28 years previously. On the campaign trail in Florida, Trump said, even without the vaccine, the pandemic's going to end. It's going to run its course. It's going to end. They'll go crazy, he said, without the vaccine. Watch it. It'll be a headline tomorrow. These people are crazy. No, it's running its course. We're rounding the turn. You'll see the numbers, and we're rounding the turn. In fact, note CNN, the numbers of newly confirmed cases, hospitalizations, the test positivity rate, they're all getting worse, not better. So there was no basis for that rather vague claim that we were, quote, rounding the turn, unquote. And apparently in Michigan, Georgia, and Florida, Trump again repeated this claim that uh, there were going to be 2.2 million deaths in the U.S. That's what we were expected to lose. And of course, as reported on this program on many occasions, Trump was citing a report from last March from scholars at the Imperial College in London that predicted a total of 2.2 million American deaths if no preventative measures whatsoever were taken in the U.S. by any government or individual to try and stop the spread of the virus. That number, in other words, was an extreme worst-case scenario if authorities did absolutely nothing. Trump has said that Joe Biden and his allies on the left want to destroy your suburbs. He also claimed that he saved the suburbs by abandoning an Obama-era anti-segregation rule. It turns out that the Obama-era affirmatively furthering fair housing rule is an update to a decades-old federal requirement aimed to eliminate discrimination and combat segregation in housing. It does not mandate low-income housing to be built in suburban areas, as Trump has repeatedly suggested. Wisconsin Trump claimed that Joe Biden would terminate our recovery with a draconian, unscientific lockdown, and I'm shocked to hear that. I'm shocked that he actually used a word like draconian. But the fact is that he's taking Biden's comments out of context. Biden did say in an August interview with ABC that he would shut down the country if scientists told him it was necessary. But he has not himself advocated a shutdown nor introduced any shutdown plan. It just goes on and on. I'm just going to try to cherry pick a few of them here. I, I do like this one. Trump asked his rally crowd in Michigan if they remembered how 12 years or so ago I got man of the year in Michigan. CNN couldn't resist noting this is among the most ridiculous false claims that Trump has continued to make over the years. Trump, who has never lived in Michigan, has never provided any evidence that he's ever been named Man of the Year by any Michigan organization, let alone by the state itself. In fact, there's no evidence that Michigan even has a Man of the Year award. Doesn't that circle us back to asking questions about Trump's mental stability? I mean, really. He tells lies that are so easily provably wrong. On the campaign trail, he's claiming over and over again, Mexico is paying for the wall. Well, that of course is a lie. Mexico hasn't contributed any money toward the construction of a border wall. The wall is being funded by the U.S. government. What little of it they actually are getting built. I mean, the fact is he claims in Michigan that at Hillary Clinton's final rally in 2016, a mere 500 people showed up. Well, it turned out that she had a capacity crowd of more than 4,000 people, 
at her rally at Grand Valley State University, according to local media reports at the time. In addition to the crowd, they estimated 4,600 inside the field house for her speech. There was an over, overflow crowd of several hundred more outside. Here's another one I like. Trump tells the crowd in Michigan about a supposed conversation six months ago with Japanese Prime Minister Shinzo Abe, in which he told Abe to get Japanese countries to build more U.S. factories. Abe said that was a matter for the companies. Trump pressed him. Abe said, well, we'll look into it. And the next day, they announced five factories coming in. And when you fact check this, when it turns out there was, in fact, no day where five companies announced factories. The Center for Automotive Research in Michigan said there's been one new Japanese auto assembly plant in the U.S. under Trump. That was a Toyota Mazda joint venture in Alabama. And in both Wisconsin and Florida, Trump criticized NBC's Savannah Guthrie for her performance in moderating a televised town hall with him the previous Thursday night, then claimed that Guthrie has since vanished. He said, she's like disappeared. Nobody can find her. Adding, in fact, nobody's seen Savannah for two days. What happened to Savannah, he said in Wisconsin. Well, the fact of the matter is uh, Savannah Guthrie had not disappeared. In fact, she co-hosted NBC's Today Show, as usual, the following morning. Anyway, suffice it to say, I think the president has a loose grip on reality. Actual studies of the number of lies and misleading statements that he has made, I I believe averages at least six a day for the entirety of his presidency with a grand total. It was was over 20,000 a while ago. Anyway, I think this circles back to what Michael Payne was saying. Why is it psychiatrists don't just mouth off about this and say, well, if you're a pathological liar, make no mistake about it, Donald Trump has allies in the media. This goofy stuff that he does generates large audiences, and large audiences make money for media companies. And I include in media companies the tech companies like Facebook and Google that make money by you staying online longer so that more ads appear in front of your eyeballs. The antics of an outrageous buffoon are are really good for both these business models. Can you do one more minute? One final item before we go to break. I did note that Judith Miller, remember her? Wrote a piece earlier this month saying the Democrats are hoping that Trump's COVID medical misfortune is their political gain. Of course, in fairness to Judith Miller, the article is a little more on the money than the headline was. She did note in the piece that Biden has, in fact, outlined a coherent federal strategy to contain the virus until a vaccine and antiviral treatment are effective and tested, which is not a claim anybody is going to make about Donald Trump. Well, we do hope that Judith Miller will improve her reporting. It was she, back in the era of the Iraq war, that got several stories published about how, uh, well, there were weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. And you know what? There weren't. And she was, in fact, forced to resign from the paper in 2005. The statement she made at the time is somewhat appropriate to uh, our discussion today. I guess I'll end with that. She defended her reporting back in 2005, stating, My job isn't to assess the government's information and be an independent intelligence analyst myself. My job is to tell readers the New York Times what the government thought about Iraq's arsenal. Well, fair enough, but depends on who you mean when you say the government. The legitimate analysts over at CIA that were saying this is bunk, or the people that were digging up agents like Curveball and Ahmed Chalabi, who were telling fanciful tales the government wanted to hear. Let's take a break. You're listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. We got lots more. Stick around. We're 
What you do 